1: This is one of these shows where if the show itself is as much fun as preparing for the show has been, then we're in for a very good time here. Uh, We are going to devote the entire show today to one guest. Uh, M. Leona Godin is a performer and the author, a performer and writer, and specifically the author of Their Plant Eyes. We'll explain the title to you at some point. Uh, Their Plant Eyes, a personal and cultural history of blindness, as the subtitle suggests, it is part memoir and part kind of cultural analysis. Uh, and so she is joining us right now. I'm excited. am uh, Leona Godown. welcome to our
0: show. Hello, Colin. Thank you for having me. And Leona will suffice. Okay. <laughs> uh,
1: I, I waited for permission. Um, yes. <laughs> so... Um, I think we should just begin with a, a little bit of your own personal story. I've been thinking a lot this summer about how time and narrative kind of move in circles. And if I if I have this right, I, I think it's true that you found out that you as a child that you were going to, going to progressively lose your sight in the same building in San Francisco's Presidio where the work is done these days by George Lucas, oh, one of yeah. the many auteurs whose depiction of blindness you would have to grapple with uh, as you began. And thinking about culture, do I, I, am I more or less on the mark there?
0: Yes, that's absolutely right. I, you know, it's kind of one of those bits of trivia that people sort of said, Well, do you really need to say that your ophthalmologist was in the same building as where Lucasfilm is now headquartered? Um, yes. I said, Yes. Yes. <laughs> I,
1: I want to know that. <laughs> And so we should explain a little bit more. You appeared at that time to maybe simply need some kind of correction. Uh, People did not – nobody understood at first what was happening to you.
0: Yeah. um, So I was 10 years old, and I suddenly couldn't quite read the writing on the blackboard. There were blackboards back then. And um, so it just seemed like a a simple – need for glasses. So we went to the optometrist and they just couldn't bring my vision back down to normal. So maybe I had 2060, something like that. Very, very minor. And uh, that set off kind of a series, a series of eye doctor appointments where they sort of started making stuff up, you know, because they couldn't mm-hmm. figure out what was going on. So they said things to my mother and I like, oh, well, maybe her eyes are growing too fast for her body or, mm-hmm. or I could have that backwards. It could be my body was growing too fast for, for my eyes, but, uh, and, and then we finally find ourselves, uh, you know, kind of face to face with the, with the head of ophthalmology at, uh, well, where Lucasfilm is, at what used to be the Letterman Army Hospital, and uh, he, he he was so frustrated at not being able to diagnose that he said. Uh, well, maybe she can't see because you've been taking her to so many eye doctors. <laughs> so, so finally, I guess, you know, my mom sort of was starting to get nervous. This was maybe a year or so, and he finally took another look and saw the beginnings of retinal degeneration, which at the time was diagnosed as RP, retinitis pigmentosa. Um, since then, it seems like it's a little bit more confusing than that. I, I lost my, like, a little bit of my central vision first um rp typically uh, you lose peripheral vision and then you kind of move into having tunnel vision so i kind of lost a little bit out of the center of my this sight and so that made it very difficult for me to read normal sized print by the time i was like a mid teenager and i couldn't really recognize faces all that well and a little bit of night blindness but that's how it lasted for for many years um so i looked perfectly normal whatever that means um uh for for many years, so I had to do a lot of explaining back then uh, that I couldn't see well.
1: Right. So, and and you know, and in a way, your your own progression uh, towards a nearer to total loss of sight, but not a total loss of sight, um, is it kind of mirrors one of the central arguments of the book too, which is that blindness yes. is not a dichotomy; uh, it's a continuum.
0: Exactly right. So I wanted to have that um yeah be sort of physicalized in my own experience um i am maybe for the last five or ten years i've kind of said well yes i'm totally blind i'm a totally blind person i have still just the teeniest bit of light perception um but most of my life has been spent somewhere along that continuum and many blind people the the vast majority of blind people that you might see you know, with a white cane or a dog, have some vision. Um, it's really quite rare to, um, well, first of all, to to be born totally blind is is really rare. Um, and then many of us don't lose complete vision until later in life. Um, yeah, so it was important for me to show that because it kind of breaks apart the dichotomy that you either see or you don't see, um, and that I meant it. In the book, I mean it to be both literal and metaphorical.
1: Right, and we're going to circle back to that uh, later on because I think it comes up in a, an interesting and semi-offensive way. Uh, oh, uh, well, <laughs> I we can.
0: Well, we could, we could, No, we can do
1: that right now. Actually, we can. I'll skip. I'll skip around in my 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 plan. You know, I mean, I think it comes up uh, up also because you've experienced this. There's this bizarre thing that people do. Uh Where they say he or she is not really blind there's there 's a whole school of thought that Stevie Wonder is not really blind uh there's this famous story about a guy in a literary salon who didn 't believe Ved Meda, uh was blind. You probably know that story uh and mm. and you. In the course of thinking i believe it was a detergent commercial or something it was something having to do with laundry right it was you,
0: maybe even a little more distasteful it was a i'm sorry i mean they've been so good to me but it was a pharmaceutical commercial okay. <laughs> uh, see
1: i've seen your demo reel so i haven't seen the whole commercial i just see you walking downstairs with a laundry oh
0: i know because i'm doing laundry all of my yeah. friends are like really how did you get cast doing laundry he, yeah. that's not you so but, but
1: so people people got up on youtube comments or something like that and said she's not really yes. blind
0: yeah. It was even more strange. It was, it was so adamant, you know, many exclamation marks of people saying things like, uh, this is an actor. They need real blind people, you know, as if <laughs> being a blind actor doesn't compute in people's imaginations. You know, it's like, you're either one, you're playing blind or, you know, or, or you're, you're not blind. So, um, yeah. or, or you're blind and you're not an actor or something that, that, that those two things don't go together. So yeah, and 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 it happens to people on the street. My my very dear friend Andy Slater, who's a sound artist, you know, and my friend Jim Knipfel, all of us at some point having some sight, but this thing of of people saying, "You don't look blind," or you're even more accusatory, right? You're not blind, like you're faking blindness, which seems to me so strange. You know why? Right. Why would you want to fake blindness? It's, it's, hard to it's, see it's what's, not what... all it's cracked up to be. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yeah, it's hard to see what Stevie Wonder's incentive would be. But, you know, I don't know exactly how blind Stevie Wonder is. Maybe he does see shadows or things like that. But, I mean, people, like, come up with these sort of weird proofs, you know. Uh, mm. It just seems like a very strange obsession for people to have. Um, well, so, but, and I, and that's why I, I link it anyway to that notion of a c- continuum, you know. W- yes. What if somebody, you know, can see a little bit and so he knows, Enough not to smash into a piano or something. Um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about one of the really fascinating concepts uh, in this book, and it's it's uh, th- this idea of ocular centrism, this notion, and it's one of those things. The only thing I can analogize to in my own life is that I'm left-handed, and I notice everything that doesn't work for left-handed people, and I I I notice that John Stewart is left-handed. I'm, if you're watching a movie with me, I'll go. He's left-handed. That'll- you no know, um nice. but i, I think if, you, if you're blind you notice how much of our language and thinking and kind of uh kind of hierarchy uh is is tilted towards the optic sense yes
0: absolutely i mean our our entertainment, our learning, uh, you know, everything is, is sort of focused in on the visual. And I should pause here for a second and say, being visual is not the same as being ocular centric. So Mm -hmm. when I say things like, you know, fight the evil empire of ocular centrism, I'm not asking for people to pull an Oedipus and, you know, like poke out their eyeballs or anything. Um, It's really about realizing that even if you are visual, um, you have to accept or I would like for people to accept the fact that there are other ways of being in the world. So, um, you know, it's a difference maybe perhaps uh, between being a white person and being a racist, you know, I mean, realizing that just because you're a visual person doesn't mean that there aren't really wonderful ways of being in the world that, that aren't visual. And I think, um, one of the ways that it shows is because so many of us who have had vision kind of incorporate the, the ocular centrism or the ocular centric mode of being so that we're afraid then to look blind. And this is going back to that idea of looking blind, whatever Mm. in the world that may mean. Um, And that we are actually complimented for it. You know, so many of us are like, Oh, you know, you, you don't look blind. And, it's almost like expected for us to say thank you, you know, Mm -hmm. which is just completely messed up because basically we're thanking someone for saying that we're not what we are. Um, And so it makes us very, it makes it very hard for us to make the adaptations that would make us the best blind people we could be.
1: Um, but but it, it is, you know, when you just sort of look at our language and our way of depicting things, I mean, seeing is believing, you know. Yes. Tr- truth is very heavily connected with lamps and beacons. Uh, self-knowledge is connected with mirrors. Uh, the the model.
0: Enlightenment age. <laughs> Enlightenment, yeah. Uh, which we're, we're
1: about to go to the Enlightenment in just a, a few minutes here. But uh, yeah, the motto of Yale is lux et veritas, light and truth. Mm-hmm. Um, we turn a blind eye towards that, which we are choosing to ignore it. it it just yes. it's all kind of tilted in that direction
0: it is and yet then there's the the opposite which is also true which is so interesting that um you know the metaphors of blindness are sort of like they're so strong that they kind of work both ways so that then um you know metaphors of blindness become the thing right so that you can be distracted by the visual world um and and not see truth right i mean that's kind of the religious or maybe poetic context of it. Um, but in general, yes, I make the argument that, um, you know, all these words like blind face, blind evolution, you know, blind rage, all of these things, are, they almost have no meaning. It's almost like a rhetorical use of blindness that, that is maybe connected with unconsciousness. And I do feel that there's some danger there. Um, a lot of blind people would not agree with me on this one. You know, like let's fight the social ills of discrimination and ableism. Yes. But who cares about language? But of course, as a writer, uh, I do care. And it seems if, if you're constantly, you constantly using blind as a, as a negative, um, then how can we as blind people kind of, uh, adopt it as something that is part of ourselves that, you know, we're not ashamed of, you know. Uh, being blind is, is part of who I am, like being a woman is part of who I am. I mean, it's it's kind of like it'd be very hard to think about what, who I would be without it,
1: you know. Mm. So uh, let's, uh, we, I'm, and I apologize, we're gonna have to speed date through a lot of stuff here because there's like so much in the book and I really want to cover <laughs> a lot of it. So <laughs> I apologize for just zooming over to something else. So I do, I want to go to the mid 18th century, mostly in France, Uh, And I want to talk about three things that happen. They're all kind of linked and significant in an interesting way. The first one I want to talk about is we have like the first cataract surgeries uh, are beginning to be done in Paris. It's uh, Jacques Daviel. Uh, I think in London it's Samuel Sharp. And it turns out that the restoration of eye function and sight, as we understand it, are not the same thing. And this is kind of our first opportunity to find this out. Maybe you can say a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, well, even going back further, because I'm not good at speed dating, so going (laughs) going back a little earlier, um, uh, there's this uh, philosopher named John Locke, and he wrote a book called Essay Concerning Human Understanding, and in it, he kind of um, thinks about what innate knowledge is, and one of his friends, a Scottish philosopher, writes to him after the publication of the the book and says, hey, I've got this... um, this kind of thought experiment. And his name is, uh, Malinu, and, it, and his thought experiment came to be known as the Malinu man. So th- the idea is, um, if a man was born blind and able to distinguish a cube from a sphere by touch, if he suddenly regained sight, would he be able to distinguish these same objects by sight alone? And, um, it's interesting because just a couple decades later, as you say, they developed the means to test this out. So it became this uh, medical slash philosophical um, operation, right, to restore sight to to blind people. And interestingly, people have real problems seeing in any kind of real sense, even when their vision is Perfectly restored, and so long before uh, you know, brain imaging came along, um, people realized that sight actually happens largely in the brain, and that if um, if portions of the of the visual cortex become uh, kind of co opted by other means of um, of learning and moving about the world, usually sort of spatial and, and sonic and things like that, then it's very hard for the brain to, to turn around and say, oh, just cause there's visual input coming in through these now working eyes to actually make any sense of it. Um, so yeah, it's interesting because you can be, you can have perfectly functioning eyes and still not be able to see.
1: Right. So not only cube versus sphere, but I think, wasn't there a young man whose sight was restored, but he couldn't just by looking tell the difference between his cat and his dog?
0: Yeah. And it's funny because this is like reiterated um, in Oliver Sacks tells a story of of a man named Virgil in one of his essays called To See and Not to See. And uh, the same thing happens. He would sort of have to like pick up the cat, pick or go and pet the cat, pet the dog. They were both black and white. So he could sort of make them out as blobs or not even blobs, but as shapes that didn't have meaning to him yet. I guess that's maybe the best way of explaining it. So yeah, not just not being able to see a cube from a sphere, but not being able to make out much of anything at all. There's a, I also talk in that chapter about um, a guy named Mike may and his story is told in crashing through. And um, you know, it's so fascinating because he he basically says I could, I could pretty much catch a ball on the run. I could, I could see colors instantaneously, but he had been blind since he was three and regained his eyeball functioning, I guess um, when he was in his forties and all of the higher level visual um visual stuff was uh it kind of eluded him and as far as i know it still eludes him to a great extent so not being able to recognize faces um still having a lot of trouble with standard size print so those those kind of higher level brain functions that come on i guess a little bit later in in our our development as as infants are still very difficult, um, even with his eyes being perfectly sound. And funny enough, that uh, that experiment, it still kind of animates people's um, scientific interests today. So in that book, Crashing Through, they talk about how the, um, the researcher showed Mike a, a cube, a picture of a cube, and he was completely confused by it. He said, oh, well, it's a square with lines. And then she set it in motion, got it to spin. And then he said, oh, it's a cube. Mm, so, I mean, just fascinating about how our brain works, right?
1: All right. So we have to move from there, although I would like briefly to claim William Molyneux for Ireland. Um but he was born in Dublin. Is he? Yeah, yeah. Um, ah,
0: but they always call him a Scottish philosopher. Uh, was the that Scottish he are made always his home they're there. They're
1: always trying to take credit for something they didn't actually
0: do. I, I'm Irish American. I'm fighting words. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm Irish American. So, um, so we move now. I want to move now to Denis Diderot, this uh, f- the philosopher who, kind of around the same time, roughly writes this remarkable letter on uh, "Letter on the Blind" for the use of those who can see, uh, and he kind of really goes at. Uh, ocular centrism. Uh, he's yes. specifically focusing on this blind mathematician Nicholas Sanders Sanderson who had lost both of the lost the sight in both eyes uh, before the age of 2, wound up being appointed to the same mathematics chair at Cambridge that had been held by Isaac Newton. Uh, and so using that and and going all kinds of places with it, he he really sort of Kind of attacks the idea that the main thing you have to do with blind people, if you can, is fix them, uh, as opposed to know and understand them. Maybe you can say more.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, he has this really wonderful quote, which I don't have in my head, sadly, um, but it's it's something like, um, and he's reacting to this this Molly New question um, that you know. If, if we really want to attempt to understand something interesting, we should stop trying to restore sight to the blind because sight is a very untrustworthy instrument, even to those who have for a long time seen, um, we would be better off just que- questioning a sensible blind man. And so he really sets off in that one small essay, uh, essay, um con- uh, uh what did we just say letter on the blind for the use of those who see Mm -hmm. um he kind of initiates in a lot of ways the idea of educating the blind as opposed to trying to cure the blind um and in fact the very first school for the blind would be opened in paris just a just a few decades after right. that essay.
1: that's where we're going next actually uh but Woo-hoo. yes I, I, but i i want to uh you know another quote from the essay that i uh, i think is fascinating he says to train and question one born blind would be an occupation worthy of the combined talents of Newton, Descartes, Locke, and Leibniz. Um, yes. he, he thinks there's a lot to be unlocked there, if you can pardon that pun. Um, so <laughs> um, so it, we should sort of say that, you know, uh, we're in the Enlightenment now. I mean, in the Middle Ages, it was not a good time to be blind. Resources were scarce. Blind people often tended to wind up either being understood as or living out lives as itinerants or beggars or uh, – you know, objects of derision. Uh, it was it was just you know a hard time. And actually, yeah. in in the middle, the
0: occasional Age, saint, though. Yeah, you get to be a saint, saint once
1: in a while. Yes. <laughs> uh, another kind of dichotomy we don't want to play into. Uh, so, um, but one thing that happens in the Middle Ages, interestingly, is that Louis the uh, is coming back from the Seventh Crusade. He find, find he, he founds a hospice, kind of for, or at least sort of some kind of charitable institution for the blind, and then five hundred years later. Uh, a guy whose name is very hard to pronounce, but it's Valentine Hue, I, I think, something like that. Uh, Howie? 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 We call him Howie to make things easier. Okay, so Howie, um, <laughs> Howie sees a group of blind people uh, from that institution. They were from Convent, this institution that had been yep. founded 500 years prior, and they're dressed up as dunces, and they're wearing eyeglasses, and they're performing music for sort of amused, sighted people, and he is outraged by this. And so yes. what does he do?
0: Yes. So he um says to himself in kind of a flourishy way, I will make the blind read. I will put into their hands instruments that they will actually be able to make sonorous music with, you know. And um it's it's funny because he I think he tells the story many times in, in the years after, you know, when people said, well, how did you come up with this idea of opening up a school for the blind? And so he even has this really funny quote where it's like, I will, you know, put the ears of the ass shall of misfortune shall be attached to thine own. He kind of addresses the impresario that came up with this Mm -hmm. this, uh, sort of uh, weird spectacle of these uh, broken instruments and the sheet music facing the audience and stuff. So he, um, what's interesting is that he kind of sits on this idea actually for about 12 years um which i can relate to and uh <laughs> finally it's actually he meets another blind person that that finally kind of pushes him over the edge and and makes him realize how he might go about mm. doing all those things that he uh, promised himself that he would do
1: so and we uh, from from that from from his institution we ultimately get braille which we're not going to have time to have time to cover at least historically right now. I was intrigued. I, I, I believe I understand you to, to, to want us to think about those people that he saw who were performing you know, kind of comically. Uh, I, I, think, I think if I understand this correctly, you wouldn't necessarily embrace the idea that they were just sitting there going, oh, I just freaking hate doing this. This is terrible. I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, I'm a figure of ridicule. That they may be yeah. in on their own kind of joke.
0: Yes, I, I believe so, you know, just as being a performer, and of course, there's plenty of, you know, comedians, sort of self deprecating comedians out there. Um, I think it's important to realize that we call it a hospice for for blind people the can event. Um, but they were free to come and go, um, so they, they were definitely they were not prisoners. According to the literature, I've never seen anything about them being prisoners or or being forced to do this performance. And my take on it, as a performer myself, is that it was probably a pretty fun time. You know, they were probably getting free beers, they were getting money for this. Um, I'm not sure that when when we as moderns say, "Oh, they were being exploited," that that necessarily would have been in in their minds. And I think it's really important to to think about this because, of course, the idea of, of progress, the the one that the Enlightenment rational response that that Howie has, is an important one, but it's not the only one. And I think that sometimes we can be too self satisfied when we look only at um, what we deem to be um, like educational performance as opposed to just having a raucous good time. Mm -hmm. Right. And that I think that in a lot of ways is kept blind people from being able to, well, to be comedians. Look, there, there's basically no blind comedians out there. And I have to say that blind people are some of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. Like we've got lots of jokes about sighted people. (laughs) Um, But um, I think that people are afraid to, laugh at blind people in our era so much that it actually kind of keeps us oppressed in a a different way, you know, Mm. maybe not equally as bad as not being educated. But of course, at that time, poor people, generally speaking, were not, they were just beginning to be educated, you Mm. know, to, to think about educating poor blind people. I should say that there were always exceptions, right? If you had some genius, if you had money behind you, there were always like a singular blind person that would kind of rise above the rest. And that includes, say, a Nic- Nicholas Saunderson. Um, so it wasn't that his idea was to educate the, the blind individual wouldn't have been a new idea, but to, indiv- but to educate sort of the masses of blind people, the middle and lower classes was, was really unique and, and new.
1: All right. We're going to pause here. Uh, we have to take a very quick break here. We're talking to Leona Godin. The book is Their Plant Eyes. I promise in the next segment you will know what that uh, title comes from, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. We'll be back.
0: Yesterday, when alone with just my tears. Then today Is if a me Support for this podcast Comes from Hartford HealthCare Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare
1: All right. Welcome back. Uh, I'm talking to Leona Godin, author of Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. Um, so uh, we got to do some literature here. Um, and uh, if we're going to do literature and we're going to do the notion of the blind bard, as you say, it all starts with Homer, who ironically may or may not have existed. But but tell us how Homer p- fits into your, your thinking. Yes. Well,
0: um, so yes, it, we don't really know if... Uh, homer existed as an individual and we surely do not know if he was blind but the idea of homer existing has been extremely powerful um and it's connected with not only blindness but also a kind of a pre-literate age so that the possibility of a blind bard makes a lot of sense before the poems were the iliad and the odyssey were written down um and so most of our ideas about the blindness of Homer and the possibility of a blind bard comes to us from centuries before the, the poems were written down. And there is in the Odyssey, there's a blind bard named Demodocus, whom uh, Odysseus finds in in the, the, the Phaeacian court of King Alcinous. And so we we have this picture that's so vividly drawn of the blind bard who is kind of led around and and given uh, you know his his seat his seat of honor and his lyre is kind of hung up behind him and um, he entertains these lords and ladies but that's really what we're going on right the idea of the blind bard that that is attached to the idea both of Um, poetry being literally musical at that time, and also the idea that if you're blind, um, you might have kind of a more direct communication with the muse, with the gods. And uh, so it opens up the possibility of um, divine compensation of the idea that maybe you might actually be a better bard, a better poet, if you can't see if you're not distracted um, by the visual world which gets kind of played out in in uh, greek philosophy and also into into christianity i I make the argument as well that idea of not being distracted by the visual world and Mm -hmm. being able to have kind of a direct line uh, to poetry on the one hand or it, divine knowledge on the other.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we do know that whether Homer was Homer or not. He- we're talking about a less ocular-centric world in certain ways. It's a, it's a world in which culture is much more oral rather than visual. Uh, it's memorized and spoken uh, and probably somewhat rephrased with every iteration. And that notion of hearing something and memorizing it is so fundamental to culture at that moment that, uh, well, Nemesine is the goddess of memory. She's the mother of all of the muses. Uh, you know, you, you get this idea that you have to be able to just remember stuff. Uh, to yeah. To be artistic and cultural, uh, and and which is, yeah, I think, begins to disappear the more that print uh, and and writing take over, uh, because you don't have to memorize as much stuff if it's all written down. Hey, can, I I don't want to cut you off, but I also don't want to miss too many things that I want to talk to you about. So could, Got it. could we jump over to that idea that you were just evoking? There's, the, there's that idea that, okay, so if if a bard is blind or if a prophet or a seer is blind, that person may have access to a muse or that person may have access to uh, uh, maybe some kind of divinely or supernaturally derived power. So. Culture starts to become full of things like this. I'm gonna, we're gonna play a little clip from the 1973 film "Don't Look Now," in which Hillary Mason plays a blind woman. She plays her with that very sort of fixed stare, that kind of doll-like blind face. Blind face. That's what you call it. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, here she is. Uh, um, uh, she and her sister are talking to Julie Christie, a woman whose daughter, a uh, very young uh, daughter, has died.
0: You're sad you're so sad and there's no need to be my sister's psychic she wants you to know I've seen her and
1: she wants you to know that she's happy I've seen your little girl
0: sitting between you and your husband and she was laughing
1: there's something very disconcerting about that whole scene and I think there is an othering uh, uh, of of a blind person in that scene, there's something spooky about it. But it also, boy, it has some very, very long roots,
0: right? Oh my goodness. It's funny because I'm like, oh my God, it's a blind movie that I missed somehow. <laughs> so I that definitely would have been in the book. But um I have many examples of that sort of thing. So there we have the archetype of the blind seer. I can, I am I'm, I'm gonna take a stab in the dark there, right? Yes, I think that's the absolutely. the blind prophetess at work. Um giving some comfort, perhaps a little bit spooky comfort. Uh, but of course, yes, that's connected with the blind poet, but of course it gets a a reworking, especially as we know it in, in the like fifth century Athens, uh, tragedies like Oedipus, right. And specifically the blind seer is always Tiresias. Um,
1: can, can I set you up here with a little Tiresias? We have, uh, we, I've got Jeffrey Wright uh, reading the part of Tiresias from, from, from <laughs> Oedipus Rex. Uh, uh, this will kind of set you up for your discussion of it. Go ahead, Cap. How terrible it is to know
0: when in the end knowing gains you nothing. I see that your words will lead us down the wrong road, and I do not wish to follow you there. And since you have made light of my blindness, I say that you are the one who is blind. You cannot see the evil that surrounds you, the iniquity within your home. You should obey your own decree, and from this moment forward, turn away from me and these people, and never speak to us again, since you are the unholy contagion plaguing in this land. You will
1: be ground down to powder, and no man will suffer as savagely as you. So Leona, I mean, a, a, yeah, and Oedipus is sort of the the perfecta of this. He taunts Tiresias for his blindness. Mm-hmm. Tiresias says, well, you're going to be blind someday. Uh, that absolutely does turn out to be true. Um, so, so, so yeah, flesh that out for us a little bit more.
0: Yeah. What's so interesting about Tiresias is that he has all this power. And I am so glad that you played that particular quote because, um, he's constantly going around and telling the kings, you know, what they need to know and they end up just ridiculing him and sending him off. And then, you know, to, to their destruction, they don't listen to him. So it's so interesting to think about, well, what was the role of the prophet in those tragedies where he's, he's constantly being put off, you know, they, they drag him out, they say what's going on and then they don't listen to him. So it's very interesting sort of how, Powerless, the blind seer is in in that context. When you when you have a a, a king who doesn't listen to you um, because you're telling them what they don't want to hear. Um, interestingly, of of course, he knows that Oedipus is the one that Oedipus is is looking for, and uh, he knows that things are not going to go go well with him. And in the end, Oedipus gouges out his eyes very famously. Um, one of the things that I think is so interesting is that, in fact, that's not the end of Oedipus. That's the that's the version that most of us mm-hmm. remember and think about. But there's actually another Oedipus, Oedipus at Colonus, yeah. and um and there he becomes the seer, um the one that can, gets kind of lifted into the bosom of the gods. And there's no Tiresias there, right? So then Oedipus becomes his own his own seer once his his eyes are poked out. So it's this kind of infinite. Reversal, which is another thing that that you were hinting at in the beginning, this dichotomy of even if um, blindness equals uh, ignorance and uh, sight equals knowledge, the metaphorical reversal of that is maybe not even any more helpful for blind people in the real world. You know, even if it's a more um, attractive thing, you know, to be a blind prophet or poet, um, it still has that same. Um, binary structure right, that makes mo- life very mo- difficult. Most of yeah. us live
1: in the middle ground, and that's where you know most of us yes. want to live. We don't want to live out on the extremes or the poles. All right. Uh, yes. I, the, my clock is totally screwed. You're going to have to come back on Monday or Tuesday or something like that. See what you can okay. do. We need a whole sec- <laughs> need a second hour. But, I, but uh, before we end this segment, we have a third segment to go. We I promised we talk about the title, which means we talk about Milton. We talk about uh, – I, and I, I think you believe that. Without the idea of Homer, one wonders if Milton would have understood that, uh, as a blind poet, that he could dictate something like Paradise Lost.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I would argue, you know, probably not. I mean, obviously you can't, you can never know. But um, it, there's a couple of interesting things about John Milton, and that is that he spent a, a good portion of his life all the way up until his early 40s when he went completely blind and, um, a scholar of the the most intense variety um, and also very uh, involved in politics. So he spent a lot of his time kind of writing, you know, treatises, these kind of uh, basically just pissing people off right and left. Um, And when he went blind, I, I, I do think that he had had this idea of writing this epic about Adam and Eve, but one wonders if he would have had the time to do it and, exactly as you say would he have thought of doing it if there wasn't this tradition of the blind poet um blind poet prophet i think we could say um so it's 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 quite wonderful because he sort of lays down at night and he apparently you know thinks of 20 to 40 highly wrought lines and there's this really wonderful quote of him waiting in the morning for somebody to come and milk him (laughs) basically to, to write down his, his uh, you know, his little, his little poem of, you know, 10,000 lines or whatever it is. And um, yeah, so that's where the, did you want me to go straight into yeah, that? Where we, my we, title we, comes yeah, from? Yeah, we, pro, we promised them.
1: We promised them we'd explain it. So yeah, you should probably. Say <laughs> um,
0: that's right. No, you have to buy the book. No, yeah. just kidding. Um, so the the title of my book is taken directly from Paradise Lost. It's a moment in Book Three when um, the narrator, the speaker that we certainly associate with Milton, uh, leaves Hell. Uh, leaves Satan and moves to heaven. And he's kind of using that language of darkness and light to say, well, I'm, I'm moving my story from the darkness of hell to the light of heaven, but I myself am still in darkness, at least literally. But then of course he turns it around and says, but I will see with my inner eye. Uh, do you want the quote or is that just too much? I can,
1: I've got it right in front of me. I'll either read it or you can do it.
0: (laughs) Oh, you read
1: it. That'd be so fun. So much the rather thou celestial light shine inward and the mind through all her powers irradiate their plant eyes, all mist from thence purge and disperse that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. How'd I do? You did great.
0: I think... (laughs) way better than I would have done. So (laughs) (laughs) excellent. So, (laughs) Yeah. So it's such a beautiful quote, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's just gorgeous, but it's, it's, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I get, I get excited. No,
1: no, no. I'm glad you said that. Um, I mean, all I'm going to say is that we're going to have to go to a break, which means we're Uh not, we're not going to talk about Edward Rochester. We're not going to talk about King Lear. We're not even going to talk about Helen Keller, whom you have played. Uh, but we are going to come back with an ideally fascinating final segment. I have to very quickly thank uh, Kat Pastor. She's the technical producer of this show, the one making everything happen the way it's supposed to. Um, She's the reason one sort of firing off those clips and music. I should say quickly about the music. The producer of this show and I, Lily Tyson, went back and forth a little bit. But I ultimately decided yes everybody that you every, all the music that you hear on the show as we go out of segments is well the, the first one was by Stevie Wonder and mm-hmm. Diane sure uh, a jazz singer who's kind of made a habit of doing duets with uh, other blind performers Stevie Wonder Ray Charles uh, and um, I know Jose Feliciano too uh, and uh, you just heard Andrea, Boce- Andrea Bocelli. Andrea at the end you're gonna hear George shearing it just seemed wrong not to use that music uh, as we discuss this topic thanks to Lily Tyson who's kind of guesting for a while as a Producer for us during the summer. She brought this idea to me, and it's a wonderful idea. I'm thrilled to be able to do it. We are talking to Leona Godin, the author of Their Plant Eyes, a personal and cultural history of blindness. You now know what the title means. So I wanted to bring up this idea with you. I'm going to take us a little bit out on a limb here and just, you know. I've I've been been thinking for the last three or four years that we might be kind of rounding a curve and and heading back a little bit to the time of Homer. And what, what I mean by this is, audiobooks are in the midst of a huge boom. I mean, the, the market grows like by twenty five percent a year. Podcast. Everybody has a podcast. Uh, that's what you hear. Well, if everybody has a podcast, that means everybody is dealing with creating and and consuming. Uh, a purely uh, audio medium, um, radio drama seems to be coming back. We we play a show called Playing on Playing on Air, which is plays, short plays that are, are done surely uh, as audio. I mean, I think you could argue the public radio with this kind of diversity of programming and going back to a Prairie Home Companion. There's a way in which I, I think maybe we're a tiny bit less
0: uh, less ocular-centric, Leona. Is that possible? That's such a good point. I, I th- you know just for me um personally about especially about the audiobooks uh, i mean this is an amazing turn of events you know i remember getting books on tape when i first um got some help finally back when i entered city college of san francisco and i had these really unsexy plastic boxes of cassettes um that would sometimes you know get twisted around and turn into spaghetti and stuff of of books and um and I was so ashamed, you know, mm. I was so ashamed that I had to read this way, but at the same time, it was liberating because I was able to read it all, but it was so shameful. And it's like, wow, now everybody reads audio books. It's mm. just, it's just amazing. So I think in that way alone, not to mention, yes, the podcast and how everybody has a podcast, um, it, it is less, it, it is less ocular centric, I think. And, and even I've been having a growing interest in smell as well, which is mm-hmm. kind of what Helen Keller calls the, the fallen angel amongst the senses um, is also having a resurgence. So I think that there's a little bit of a, a backlash and I, I feel like maybe I'm, I'm writing that anti-ocular centric wave a bit and, I, <laughs> and I'll keep doing it. <laughs> you're
1: surfing it. So, um, the um, yeah, actually, you might have to come back. For, I've had the idea of an olfactory show uh, on my list of possible things to do for about three or four years. So we, we, you're making me want to get to that. So we probably have time for to get into one more area. And here's the area I want to get into. I want you to begin by telling uh, us the, the Ray Charles moon story, if you would.
0: Oh, all right. So... He, um it, this is from uh, Ray Childs, what is it called? His own story that he wrote with with mm-hmm. David Ritz. And there's a moment at which he's apparently going around, maybe this is for, you know, some research for a song, I'm not sure. But he's asking all of his, his staff, you know, so what happens with the moon? Does it, you know, does it go, does it... um Suddenly I can't think of what the word is. Does it does it ebb slowly or or does it just sort of all of a sudden go from being a full moon to a sliver? And apparently everybody in his office is just totally tongue tied and they can't answer his question. And he says, well, what do you all have eyes for if you don't even use them?
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he said, I think his quote is, with all that 2020, y'all don't with even look at the 20- moon. <laughs> um, and I, I think that that's, and that sort of leads to this whole issue of whether sighted people use their eyes as well as they could. And that's mm. a very powerful idea for me because – I think we're on a continuum, too. And I've known for most of my life that I'm on the more limited end of that spectrum. I don't store visual information very well. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm much more likely to know it by either reading it or hearing it. I don't make eye contact very well or much at all, I'm told. I don't recognize faces very well. Uh, um, I have a very good memory for what I've heard and read. And I feel like, you know, we talked about blindness being a continuum, not a dichotomy. I think sightedness is probably also a continuum, right? There's just people who kind of do more of it than other people.
0: Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad that you said that because I think that that's absolutely true. I tend to have a lot of artist friends. Um, and it's it's interesting how much or how little um, certain people see. Uh, I'm going to drag him in here. Uh, my partner Alabaster, you know, he's a marvelous illustrator. He has really amazing drawing talents and stuff, but he always says, you know, I don't look at people like he, you know, I'll say, is that so-and-so? And he'll say, I don't know. I don't remember, you know? So it's, it's interesting, um, to, to think about site as being a continuum and, and even things just like just as simple as say color people have completely different opinions about what a color is. And I spend a little bit of time thinking about that as a blind person, cause you'll ask somebody what a color is, uh, what color something is. And one person will say one thing, somebody else will say something pretty different. Um, and I realized, well, what is that about? Is that about language or is that about, you know, your color receptors in your retina is, is, is it about, um, just being more attuned to the, to the differences, maybe you're an artist and you, and you use color to a much more nuanced way. So I think you're absolutely right that even if you have eyes, you still need to train them. I mean, that's that, going back to that whole Molly Newman mm-hmm. thing is that, you know, vision happens in your, in your brain. And so having 2020 vision doesn't mean that you see everything. And of course now people are really realizing that even, um, you know everybody puts so much weight on eyewitness accounts for so long and people are just wrong dead wrong and it has nothing to do with the you know the ability to see but it's yeah that ability to remember faces also the fact that humans are storytellers and so once we start telling ourselves a story we can make a criminal out of anybody right
1: mm-hmm. Well, the color thing is fascinating too because we can get back to Homer. There's this whole question of the wine dark sea, which is maybe yes. his most persistent uh, trope. You know, and the sea is not really the color of wine uh, for the most part. And people say, well, maybe that's because he was blind. Well, no, because throughout the Iliad and the Odyssey, he describes wine as being red or dusky or even black. Uh, yeah. So he clearly knew what color wine was. Uh, but maybe he's maybe whoever that was. Saw, you know, either that there's all kinds of meteorological and dust speculation and pollen, but but you know maybe that person just yeah. saw things more vividly than, for example, I do.
0: Right, right, and well, interesting too is you mentioned a while back um, about you know sort of the Greeks not being um, so much of an ocular centric culture, but by the time that the Odyssey got written down. They most people will say that they were a pretty ocular centered culture and and that, you know, the Odyssey itself of the Iliad as well is extremely visual. And mm. so you also have this backlash of um of of people saying, even in antiquity, well, no, how could Homer be blind because he saw more than all of Greece besides? You know, so they're also kind of it connects with this idea of uh blindness uh leading to the inability of talking about the, the visual world, you mm-hmm. know, and that um, I completely derailed your question. Well, that but that doesn't
1: make any <laughs> difference because the show's over. So you have to come back oh. Monday. Or- <laughs> <laughs> you have to come back Monday or Tuesday. We've got at least another hour of stuff to talk about. But for now, uh, I hope people are content to have heard Leona Godin, author of Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. Thanks so much for doing this today.
0: Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. I wish I would have gone out of the gate with more gusto. Oh, you went out of the gate just fine. You went out of the gate (laughs) fine and you finished just
1: fine, too. Nothing wrong with any of it. All right. Uh, Thanks very much. much. Bye-bye.